0: Uh, we're in um, Acts chapter 11, we've been making our way through the book of Acts, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 18 this morning. Um, if you're uh, listening online, I just encourage you to get some communion elements if you would like to be part of communion when we have that at the end of the message. Um, all right, have you got it? Acts chapter 11, verses 1 to 18. If you're not sure where that is, your Bible will have a index at the beginning, and You can find out what page that starts on. Um, You know, every time I go to prepare a message, um, I always have to try to remember the flow of thought because we're jumping into the middle of a story. The book of Acts is a story. And in order to understand a particular chapter, you kind of have to know the flow of thought. So every week that I'm preparing a message, I have to go back and remember what is this all about? And so I have to do the same thing for you. What is this all about? What is the book of Acts about? And um, I'll remind you that Acts is about the mission of God and it's his mission to bring the kingdom of God to earth. That's what's happening in the book of Acts. And so Acts tells us how the Christian church spread through the whole of the Roman Empire in a 30-year period so that there were churches in major centers all across the whole of the Roman Empire. How did they do that? I mean, we have a hard enough time spreading the message across Drumheller. How did they spread it across the Roman Empire. And so that's what we look at when we look at this. And I find that Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 11, I have to always remember it because I think it lays out key themes that are followed throughout the book of Acts. So let me just remind you of what's happening in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 11, because every chapter, including the one we look at today, has to be understood in light of Acts chapter 1 verses 1 to 11, where Luke lays down God's plan for the mission. And God's plan for the mission is that, first of all, in verse 1, is that it will be led by Jesus. We need to never forget that Jesus is leading the mission. He hasn't handed off the baton. He's not leaving us to our own devices, our own strategies, our own ideas. He is leading the mission. And And he's always there leading it, even now. So Jesus did not hand off the mission to us. He's leading it here in Drumheller. And then the second thing I noticed is that it's powered by the Holy Spirit. So the mission is led by Jesus. It's powered by the Holy Spirit. In verse 5, Jesus says, now you wait in Jerusalem. And then in verse 8, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. In other words, you have to wait for power. You can't do the mission without the power of the Holy Spirit. So you cannot succeed unless you have the Spirit's power. That's true for us too. We cannot succeed without spiritual power. We cannot raise the dead. Only God can do that. And people are born spiritually dead. They need to be given life. So that's the second thing. And then the third thing is that the kingdom will be built on the apostolic witness. He says in verse 8, you will be my witnesses. And every person who's ever come into the kingdom of God has done so on the basis of the apostolic witness. All through Acts, the kingdom spreads through verbalizing the, the apostles' testimony to who Jesus is and what he does. It's actually the power of God. When people hear that message, these ideas, these concepts, and believe them, they're supernaturally changed into new creatures. They'll never be the same. It's built on the apostolic witness. And then finally, in verse 11, it's motivated by Christ's return. We are told that in the same way he departed, he will return. And that's what we're looking forward to. When Christ's return and all evil is abolished, we have joy and peace in a new heaven and a new earth. The Christian hope, the return of Christ, his total victory, is what we're all moving towards. That's what it's all about. Now, Christianity then is not a human-driven enterprise. It's not a human-invented thing. Christianity isn't just a religion that other people have created. It's the design of God. It depends upon and flourishes only by being led by the Spirit, uh, pardon me, led by Jesus, powered by the Spirit, built on the apostolic witness, and then in anticipation of the return of Christ. But as we've been going through the book of Acts, we've seen that God's mission faces opposition. This is a recurring theme. So, for example, from the outside of the church, we see in chapter 4 and 5 that the apostles are arrested They're threatened, they're forbidden to speak a witness to Jesus. They're beaten um, and told never to speak of Jesus again. And then we see in chapter 7 that Stephen, after bearing witness to Jesus, is stoned to death. In chapter 8, we see that Christians are fleeing for their lives because a general persecution breaks out against Christians. So there's this opposition to the kingdom spreading throughout the world. It's an opposition that the kingdom will always face, opposition from outside the church. But then there is an opposition, a threat to the mission that comes from inside the church, and the threat from inside the church is always more dangerous than the threat from outside. And so we see in chapter 5 that Ananias and Sapphira, they bring deceit and self-interest into the church, and it's a threat to the mission. God strikes them dead. Now look at that. God strikes Ananias and Sapphira dead for threatening the mission. He doesn't kill anybody outside the church at this point. It's a greater threat when it comes from inside. And then in chapter 6, we see there's this conflict that's starting to arise within the church, and we see how it is settled in Acts chapter 6. Well, today, in chapter 11... we we see another threat to the mission that's coming from inside the church, and it's a threat that's alive and well today. So we want to look at that. Let me summarize what the chapter is in very short terms, and then we will kind of go through it bit by bit. But this is what's happening in Acts chapter 11. Back in Acts chapter 10, Um, Peter has gone to the home of a Gentile. The whole house is filled with Gentile people who want to hear the message about Jesus. He gives them the message. They become Christians, and they're baptized. They join the kingdom of God. In chapter 11, Peter goes back to the home church in Jerusalem, and they are upset with Peter that he has gone into the home of Gentiles. They are resistant to what he's done. And so, for the next um, 11 or 12 verses, verses 4 to 17, Peter defends and shows that what has happened is from God. And then right at the very end in verse 18, they, they are convinced and they embrace what's happened. So, that, that's the story. That's what's happening. Now, let, let's go through three points I want you to notice. The first one could be summarized by saying that insiders are resisting God's mission. And you see that in verses 1 to 3. The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, You went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Now chapter 10 is very pivotal. Because this is where the kingdom of God crosses from just being another Jewish sect to being an all-inclusive faith. So it's very critical. It fulfills the promise that was given thousands of years ago to Abraham that through him all peoples on the earth would be blessed. This was right in their scriptures. It fulfilled what Jesus promised in John chapter 10 when Jesus said, I have other sheep that are not of this Jewish fold. Um, I must bring them also and they will all be one flock. That was Jesus' anticipation. And these Gentiles have now been born again. They've received the spirit of God. They're new creatures in Christ. They're part of the kingdom. And you would think that the Jewish Christians would just be ecstatic about this. Other people are believing. Their lives are being changed. They have hope. Isn't this fantastic? The cause of Jesus is going forth like gangbusters. But they're not happy. They're not celebrating. In fact, they're really, really miffed. They lose their joy on a technicality, on a bias, a prejudice. Now, what is their issue? Well, they don't seem to object that Gentiles have come to put their faith in Jesus. That doesn't seem to be the issue. They are upset that Peter went into the house of a Gentile, and get this, he ate with them. This is a mark of fellowship. This is a mark of acceptance, and Peter had the gall not only to preach the gospel, that's not such a bad thing, but to eat with these converts, these Gentiles. These were unceremonially, uh, me, ceremonially unclean people. They did not keep the Jewish regulations. Now, do you see the sadness of that? People's lives are being changed, and they get hung up on a technicality. They're in a dither because their bias has been contradicted by what Peter did. And the worst thing is, that their personal rule is not even found in their scriptures in the Old Testament. Jesus also was criticized for the kind of people he would eat with. And now Peter's being criticized because he is eating with these Gentiles. It would be kind of like this. Let's just imagine that Aaron went into the local bar and he shares the gospel with people in the bar and 20 people come to faith in Jesus, and our whole church gets upset because Aaron went into a bar and he had a beer as he told these people about Jesus. They got lost on a technicality. That's what's happening here. Now, it seems that every time God is going to cause His kingdom to grow in the New Testament, somebody with good intentions trying to be right, opposes and criticizes and hinders the mission. Jesus faced that. Peter is here facing that. Paul faced it all the time. And John faced it, the Apostle John. He faced this criticism by well-meaning, convinced Christians. And I want you to just picture the scene with these people. Just imagine the mood of these people. Look at them. Look at their sense of indignation, the the righteousness of their anger. They are completely convinced that they're the ones standing for what is right. See how persuaded they are. And listen to them. Listen to them as they talk to each other. They pick up their cell phone. Hey, have you heard? Peter went into the home of some Gentiles, and get this, he, he ate with them. I can't believe it. And he calls himself an apostle. What kind of guy is he? But they were wrong. They were a detriment to the very mission they professed to love. Their case was not based on a vision, as Peter's was. Their case was not based on a voice from heaven as Peter's was. It was not grounded in the word of God as Peter's case was but on blind, emotional opinion and preference. They were willing to dissociate from those people that God was willing to associate with. They were willing to reject those who were now The children of God, born again, indwelt by the Spirit of God, all because of their bias. Now, it's a common hindrance to God's mission today. In fact, it might be the biggest thing that harms the mission of God. I can't associate with those people. They have different views of the COVID restrictions. How can I even attend that church? I can't associate with those people. They don't believe in the vaccine. How can I be with them? They have different ideas about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. How can I be close to them? Brothers and sisters, let's learn a lesson from this. Let's guard against bias lest we find ourselves harming the mission of God in the world. That's what was happening here. So let me ask you, what stirs your emotions more? The fact that a person is saved by God or that they have a personality you don't like. What stirs up your feelings more? So insiders resisting God's mission. And then the second thing I want you to notice from verses 4 to 17 is Peter defending God's mission. Now, just put yourself in Peter's shoes. You come back home. You've had this you know, wonderful experience with these Gentiles coming to faith, and Jesus had promised that the Gentiles would come to faith, and he gets home, and he's roundly criticized for, for what he's doing. I mean, he could have been so indignant, so upset with him. He could have said, do you know who you are talking to? I am Peter. I was handpicked." By Jesus, I spent three years in special training at the feet of Jesus. Were you? I've been given power to do miracles. 3,000 people came to faith when I preached my first sermon. Jesus called me the rock. Has he ever called you the rock? He appointed me to be an apostle. Who do you think you are? He could have responded like that, but he didn't. He responded with humility and gentleness. He reasoned with them. We see in verse 4, these words, starting from the beginning, Peter told them the whole story. He begins to reason with them. And you see, what's happened is this. Peter did not see himself as so different from them because just in the last chapter, God had to give him a vision three times to get him past his own bias. He didn't see himself as up here and them down there. He saw himself as just like them. Isn't it important that we have that kind of attitude when people are different from us? We're not so far beyond them, ourselves, when they offend us, when they let us down. So what does Peter do in the face of this criticism? Well, he walks them through the very things that helped him past his own biases. And so he gives six evidences that this reception and welcome and embracing of the Gentiles, even eating with them, was really God's idea. It was something God was doing. And these six evidences could each be represented by one word that begins with the letter V. The first one you find in verses 5 and 6, a vision. He says, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. I saw something like a large sheet being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to where I was. I looked into it and saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles, and birds in other words, this isn't my doing. I got this vision. Have you, have you ever had a vision? A vision carries with this this tremendous sense of the presence of God. That God is in it. Let me, <coughs> excuse me, just get a drink here. And then the second evidence you find in verses 7 to 10, a voice then I heard a voice telling me, Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. I replied, Surely not, Lord. Nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. The voice spoke from heaven a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times. And then it was all pulled up to heaven again. In other words, God made his well, very clear to me, Peter is saying. I couldn't miss it. I absolutely knew what God was saying to me. And then the timing of this is really, this next, this next evidence is really significant. There was a visit in verse 11. Right then, I've underlined those words, right then. I've just had this vision three times, and right then, three men come to my door, And they call out for me, not two two men and not four men, but three men with three visions preceding. And then there is this validation in verses 12 to 14. The Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. These six brothers also went with me and we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen an angel appear in his house and say, Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. In other words, the Holy Spirit, Peter is saying, conveyed to me such a strong conviction that I just knew I had to go with these people to a home of a Gentile. Anything else would have felt like sin to me. It was that clear to me. Have you ever heard God the Spirit, give you that strong an impression that you just knew what He was telling you you ought to do. Anything else would have been a sin not to do it. And then verse 15 to 16, there was this verification. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as He had come on us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. In other words, when Peter saw these Gentiles, that they had received the Holy Spirit, he got this memory. He remembered looking at Jesus one day, and Jesus speaking to them and saying, one day the Spirit of God will be poured out on all my people. And he went, bingo. That verifies that this is all from God. These people's lives are changed. And here it is. It's happening to Gentiles. Jesus had promised this outpouring, and here it is. And finally, there's a verdict. Verse 17. So, if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ... Who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? And by the way, who are you to stand in God's way? <laughs> now, do you get what he's saying in this verse, verse 17? If God is accepting Gentiles just as they are, who is Peter to reject them? God, God didn't say, well, I want to pull and pour my spirit out on you, but first you all have to get circumcised. God didn't say, well, you know, I want to pour out my spirit on you, but first you have to all clean up your act you have to become more like my Jewish people, then I will accept you. God didn't say that. And I want you to notice something here. Notice how God pursued the Gentiles. He gave an angel to Cornelius back in chapter 10, a vision to Peter, a voice from heaven, a visit at just the right time, the validating conviction by the Spirit of God, the verifying gift of the Spirit, God is a pursuer. He pursues you. He wants you. He is not reluctant. He's not stingy. He's not begrudging. He's not half-hearted in wanting you. He set his eyes on you when you were not clean. He pursued you when you did not want him. He loved you when you had other loves. He wants you even though he knows the worst thing about you. Somebody once said, God's love is utterly realistic based on prior knowledge of the worst things about you so that nothing you do can surprise him or smother his determination to bless you. God wants you. He sees you just as you are, and he pursues you. He goes to great effort to get you. That's what we see in his effort to reach the Gentiles. You know, God doesn't play hard to get. God doesn't stand back and go, well, first prove yourself. Then I'll love you. First be good enough, then I'll hear your prayers. Have you seen that in your own life? Like, do you live by that? Do you live by this, God knows all about you, but he wants you. He pursues you. Other people might be hard to please. Other people might reject you. Other people might find fault, but not God. He wants you. Come to him. His arms are wide open. That's what we see here. Insiders resisting God's mission. Peter defending God's mission. And then thirdly, insiders accepting God's mission. Verse 18. When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. You see, for God's mission to cross over from Jews to the rest of the people in the world, the church had to overlook differences. The church had to allow for differences. It had to give up some of their own preferences being forced on others. And they had to support what God had made very clear. He accepted even Gentiles. He accepted them. And it's so important that Luke records this story twice and gives details. This is critical in the extension of the mission of God. We have to get past biases. Luke is telling us how this crisis was averted. Now, how was that? How can we keep in step with what God wants to do in Drumheller? Well, they listened to Peter. They listened to him. They let him talk. They listened respectfully and thoughtfully to the witness of the Apostle Peter. They suspended their own personal feelings. That's hard to do sometimes, isn't it? When we have a real strong conviction about something, just to suspend our feelings, let ourselves listen. They weighed the evidence, and then they did something really difficult. They admitted they were wrong. (laughs) And they recognized what was most important. If God accepts someone, evidenced by that person's repentance and new life, who are we to reject them? Whatever else might be true of them, if God has accepted them and given them repentance and new life, who are we to reject them? And I find their words almost funny. Uh, As you read it, he says... uh, so then, even to Gentiles, you know, <laughs> like they are the worst of the worst, even to Gentiles, God has granted, they're incredulous. Wow, Gentiles. These people that we used to call dogs, you know. It's the kind of confessions that Christians have to make sometimes through church history, or else stand in the way of God. Huh, even to charismatics. God has given repentance and new life, wow. even to people with other skin colors. God has brought them to repentance and this new life. You know, even to those who resist COVID restrictions. You know, God has given them repentance and a new life. That person with an irritating personality—they've repented. They're living a new life. The one thing that ought to bind all Christians together in God's mission is the equally shared salvation of God. Everything else is secondary. Everything else is secondary. And we have to do that here in Drum. I want you to notice two things. First of all, it's God who grants repentance. In other words, he works in the human heart. He enables the sense of one's sinfulness and the desire to change. He gives repentance. The verse doesn't say that God granted the possibility of repentance and He gives this possibility of repentance to everybody. He gave it to them as a gift. He gave it to them. He gave them repentance. He didn't say manufacture it. He gave them the capacity repent. In other words, salvation is an act of God. He provides everything necessary to be saved, even repentance. He gives repentance. That's why we have to love people who have repented. They've been given this gift from God. God has owned them. God has claimed them. We don't have to like everything they do. We don't have to agree with all their ideas, but we have to love them. We have to accept them. And then the second thing is this. In order to be saved and have eternal life, people must repent. There's no unrepentant person in heaven. Not even one. Every person in the kingdom of God is a repentant person. Jesus said, unless you repent, you will perish. You have to repent. Every person offends God by their very nature. We have to repent. Every person has to turn from their sins, have to turn from their independence from God to this dependence and trust in God. We all have to repent. And those who do so are immediately saved, immediately changed and forgiven and cleansed by God. So that's what we've been looking at. In Acts chapter 11. And I kind of want to wrap it up with our communion this morning. And I want to start by asking you, who should take communion? Who should be taking communion? And the answer is, you have to be a person who's repented. You have to be a person who has trusted that Christ has paid for your sins by his body broken on the cross and his blood poured out. Now, why is that true? Well, because communion is acknowledging that Christ has died on the cross, poured out his blood for the forgiveness of my sins. So it's kind of hypocritical to be part of a celebration that says one thing by our actions, but isn't true in our heart. And so it's meant for people who have repented. And so I want to invite you this morning to celebrate communion. And as we take the bread... There's a little wafer on top of here for you. Um, As you do it, I want you to apply the text we've been looking at. And I want you to renew your repentance this morning. We come remembering that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And I want you to, this morning, as you take the bread, just once again come to God as a repenting person. I want to invite you to examine yourself and um, see if you have remembered to seek forgiveness from God for anything you have been doing since the last time you repented. It's a good time for self-examination. Why don't we pray together?